Wednesday, August 3rd, over the hump, one day closer to the return of the king. And I didn't make it to the meeting last night. I'll tell you all about it. I think I have a better strategy anyway, so that's kind of where I'm going to go with this. But anyway, www.anakipto.com, homework is posted. I'm going to read some of it to you. And also I got a suggestion from a listener that I'm not spending enough time in the Bible and I should simply read some scriptures every day, and I think I'm going to do that also at least until I get feedback, one way or the other. I really thought at first blush that going to the city council meeting yesterday would have been a good idea, and I mentioned that on Monday's program. But as the day wore on, I just, I don't know if it was a check in my spirit or if it was inertia, laziness, what it was, but it just plain didn't feel right. And oftentimes, as you have probably experienced, when the Holy Spirit is putting a, a break on one of your plans, maybe it's a good idea to hold off a little bit. And as I mentioned, our council meetings are, are monthly meetings. So the next opportunity is in September. But it just plain didn't feel right. So I demurred. And I thought about it afterwards and thought that maybe the thing to do would be to contact my local zone councilman and build a relationship with him first. And so that's kind of what I'm doing. I sent him an email. I told him who I was. I've been here for 20 years. He lives right down the street. I could almost walk there. But I said, let's get together for coffee. And so we'll see if he responds. And I plan on just getting together and not rolling out my agenda or walking in there with my big King James Bible or anything like that, but simply find out, you know, who are you, where are you coming from, how long have you been a councilman, what's going on in the city. And my perception of this, or my view of this, is that at the end of the day, a lot of the issues that we really face are going to be won or lost at the municipal level. As much as the friendly folks in Washington, D.C. want to micromanage everything, the decisions will be made here as to what kind of community we have and whether or not we're going to give pushback to the goons at the federal level who try and tell us that we have to do transgendered bathrooms or whatever it may be, teach our second graders all about sex. So if we can win the battle at the local level, at the municipal level, if we can build a core at the municipal level of resistance to some of these absolutely ungodly policies that are being foisted on us, then maybe. And if not, then not. But as I said, the war is going to be won or lost here. There's a municipal aspect, as you probably know, to the church also. Church was never seen as a national thing. The kingdom, of course, is global. But the assemblies are local assemblies. There is the church at Corinth, and there is the church at Laodicea. And while they can be friends with each other and <laughs> write to each other, go on each other's Facebook pages or whatever, the folks in Laodicea have no authority, spiritual or otherwise, regarding any of the other municipal churches. They can't go down to Ephesus and tell the Ephesians what to do. Paul, as an itinerant, as you know, set the structures, set the foundations, 
but gave autonomy to the locals. Raise up elders in every city, or appoint elders in every city, was the command. It's the elders and leadership by consensus that determine the direction of a church. And of course, as we see in the book of Revelation, when the Lord is speaking to the seven churches, he speaks to seven. All seven have separate challenges. All seven have separate areas of commendation or rebuke or what have you. But there's no overlap. They're discrete units. So that being said, and the strength of municipality, of course, is that it is local, I'm inclined to think that that's a good direction to go. The reason I bring it up is because, once again, it's something that you can do. You can look in your local phone book or what have you, call your local city council, town council, whatever it is, find out who your guy or girl may be, build a relationship, listen, and go from there. So that's what I'm going to do. It's a slow process, and there may not be a whole lot of time left, but we do the best we can, and that's kind of the lay of the land for me for now. So I'll keep you posted on that. I hope we can have coffee with the councilman in the very near future, and we'll see what happens. Next, I want to do the worldview in five minutes. There is a mention here at the end of the Ark Encounter and Ken Ham and Bill Nye and their ongoing relationship. I tried to find the video that is referenced there, and I couldn't find it. Someplace on YouTube, and Adam says, as you will hear in just a few moments, that this recent episode was posted within the last couple of days. So I went to Ark Encounter, and I went to Ken Ham, and I went for Bill Nye, and I went for uh, the last three days, and the issue, one of the issues that they were discussing was why people wear clothes. And maybe you have some thoughts on that. That's probably irrelevant to the discussion right now, but that was one of the things I searched for. I couldn't find it. That to say this, if you can go to YouTube and you can find the video, please do so. And I will maybe send it to Karen for posting Karen's news or put it up on the website tomorrow for extra credit or whatever. But I would like to share that with all. I, I still think that this is um, not an area of conflict, but an area of clarity. Because uh, for those flat earthers out there, when you talk to someone who thinks that the earth is a globe, uh, does it become acrimonious? Do you get angry? Do you get bitter? Do you throw things? Do you use nasty words or nasty names? Or on the other side, for those of you who think that the earth is a globe, when you confront someone who is persuaded from scripture and their own view of the world that it's really not, that the earth is really flat, do you get angry and bitter? When you talk to a sinner, do you get angry and bitter? Why is it that in this one particular area, when the creationists are really trying to be nice and saying, hey, let's just look at the evidence, that there's so much anger, so much vitriol? Why is this? Once again, I submit the true scientists don't have to get angry and throw things when they come up with a new theory or an explanation or something they believe in. All they have to do is present the evidence. And if it is true science, the evidence should kind of speak for itself. If it's a philosophy or something else, well, maybe it's a little bit different. Though even when I was in high school, when I was a captive audience, grade school and high school, and evolution was being foisted on me, uh, there was no screaming and hollering. Uh, but neither was there any science. It was simply a presentation of evidence. And here, look at it through this lens and then tell me what you see. 
But I still find this very intriguing, and I think, once again, one of those evidences that we are truly in the last of the last days. But having said that and rambled probably too much, let's listen to Adam, The Worldview, in five minutes, and I'll be right back. It's Wednesday, August 3rd, 2016 A.D. This is The Worldview in five minutes. I'm Adam McManus. Republican Illinois Governor Bruce Rayner signed a bill into law that would force Christian doctors and 51 pro-life Illinois pregnancy centers to actually promote abortion. The Worldview spoke with Jay Hobbs of Heartbeat International on the disconnect between Bruce Rayner, the candidate, and Bruce Rayner, the governor. You look at the history of this bill, and it passed on strictly party lines. Only Democrats voted in favor of this and only Republicans voted against it, which made it quite a bit of a surprising move that a Republican governor would approve this. Effective January 1st, 2017, the new law will require all medical professionals to go against their deeply held religious conscience by referring patients for abortions and counseling patients on what the legislation calls the, quote, benefits, unquote, of abortion. Hillary Clinton wants free abortions for everybody if she's elected, We spoke with Tom Breccia, president of the Thomas More Society, about how Hillary's agenda would impact America. I think they're trying to mandate uh, abortion because they see that especially our young people are coming to grips with the ugly reality of abortion. As you say, it's murder. No two ways about it. It's a living being, and if it isn't human, what species doesn't belong to it? Abrasive rhetoric among the leading presidential candidates has stepped up. President Barack Obama doubled down yesterday on his claim that Donald Trump is unfit to be president. Meanwhile, Trump referred to Hillary Clinton as the devil in a rally in Mechanicsburg, Virginia, and referred to Barack Obama as the worst president. An Iranian court has refused to release an Iranian female Christian prisoner, saying intelligence forces do not want her out of prison, reports the Iranian Christian News Agency. Miriam Zargaram's two-week-long hunger strike, which began on July 5th, asking for immediate and unconditional release, was unpersuasive. Miriam suffers from a serious congenital heart condition known as an atrial septal defect, commonly referred to as a hole in the heart. Severe headaches, ear pain, tremors, chronic joint and spine pain, and numbness in her hands and legs. Psalm 3418 reminds us, that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. He rescues those whose spirits are crushed. Days after Humana dramatically scaled back its participation in Obamacare due to a $1 billion loss, CNN Money reports that Aetna announced yesterday that it's canceling plans to expand into five more states next year and will reassess its involvement in the 15 states where it currently offers coverage on the individual exchanges. More than half of the co-op insurers, created and funded by Obamacare, have failed. In addition to the chess club, elementary-age public school kids across the country might soon be able to join an after-school Satan club. According to the Washington Post, members of the Satanic Temple hope that their after-school program will compete with the Good News Club, a Christian program that is allowed. Satan Temple chapter leaders from New York, Boston, Utah, and Arizona met in Salem, Massachusetts to brainstorm their quote-unquote evangelism program. Nevertheless, 
Jesus Christ has all power over the devil and reminds us, If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Matthew 12:28. Prison Fellowship, founded by the late Chuck Colson, has a new leader. The Christian Post reports that his name is James Ackerman, a man who put aside his 25-year career in the entertainment and media industry. He's the son of Emmy Award-winning television producer Harry Ackerman and actress Eleanor Donahue. As part of the Prison Fellowship Ministry, Ackerman has shown inmates how to write resumes, how to conduct themselves in job interviews, and how to budget their time and money. Ken Ham, president of Answers in Genesis, has posted another video of his July debate aboard the Ark Encounter with Bill Nye, the science guy. Ham explained to the agnostic evolutionist why humans wear clothes. God gave clothes because of sin. The fact that we're wearing clothes is a reminder that God killed animals and clothed Adam and Eve, the first blood sacrifice that are covering for their sin, pointing towards the fact that someday one would come to die for our sin, die for your sin, Bill, and die for mine, be raised from the dead, and offer a free gift of salvation, and he offers it to you too. Ken Ham also took the opportunity to share the gospel with Bill Nye. You know what the Bible says? If you're not born again, you suffer a second death, which is eternal separation from God. And I'm not going to suffer that second death. I don't want you to suffer that second death. I really don't, Bill. I know you don't. And that's the worldview in five minutes on this Wednesday, August 3rd, in the year of our Lord, 2016. Invite your friends to listen to this unique Christian newscast at theworldview.com. I'm Adam McManus. Seize the day for Jesus Christ. Why Mr. Obama is so concerned with what other world leaders think of our election process, uh, I think there's something there that does not quite meet the eye. I don't think that what he's saying is really the message he's conveying, though I haven't quite figured out exactly where he's going with this. Of course, if he really wants to wreck the country, and all evidence points to the fact that that's exactly what he wants to do, then if he thinks that Mr. Trump is such a horrible president, then he should be pulling for him with both oars. But obviously there's something else going on here. Um, Maybe it's just more political theater. Uh, Once again, too hard to tell for me. Uh, This one is a little bit inscrutable. There is, of course, also an escalating level of rhetoric against the lovely and gracious Hillary Clinton, and I continue to submit that we have not met Hillary Clinton. I still think that she's been demon-possessed since she was a little girl, and the true Hillary Clinton is a terrified little girl, never allowed to have a growing up, never allowed to become an adult, simply trapped in this body with these monstrous demons who are terrifying her, and we need to pray like crazy really pray for the true Hillary that these demons can be cast out. And I am rather persuaded that if she were delivered, uh, maybe she'd walk away from the Oval Office. Maybe the true Hillary just wants to go someplace and heal. But you can see in the scriptures, and I'm going to read a passage to you, where we see the dramatic difference in a person once the demons have been cast out. And this is true kingdom stuff. I mean, this is not stuff that happened 2,000 years ago, and we haven't had any of it since. This is still very much going on today. Maybe not so much evident in the United States. And, of course, as I pointed out before, and you probably know, these demons have 2,000 years of experience 
fooling people and masquerading and doing all the other things that dastardly deed doers do so well. So we could be dealing with someone who is a psychopath or sociopath who could be demon-possessed, and we would simply think, man, that person's whacked out. We wouldn't realize what it really is. And because we don't, there isn't a whole lot of casting out of demons these days. But I, for one, think it's real. Now, the passage I had in mind is in Luke chapter 8, and this was early in Jesus' ministry. It was before he sent the 70 out. It was before the transfiguration. It was before the feeding of the 5,000, one of his earlier signs. I'm looking in verse 26. They sailed to a country of the Gadarenes, and there are some variations on this, but it was on the other side of the Sea of Galilee in any event. Opposite Galilee. So if you're familiar with the lay of the land, Galilee was the region in northern Israel. Kind of, if you're looking at the map, it would be to the left of the Sea of Galilee. And then on the right was an area called the Ten Towns, or Decapolis was the term, which means ten towns. So he sailed in one of his fishing boats, maybe a small flotilla, across the Sea of Galilee, probably departing from Tiberias. So they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes, and when he stepped out of the land, they met a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time, and he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out, fell down before him, and with a loud voice said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles. And he broke the bonds, and was driven by the demon into the wilderness. Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Now a herd of many swine was feeding there on the mountain. And they begged him that he would permit them to enter them, and he permitted them. Then the demons went out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. When those who fed them saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then they went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They also who had seen it told them by what means he who had been demon-possessed was healed. Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear, and he got into the boat and returned. Interesting, and interesting at more than one level. But you can imagine what this guy was like beforehand, hardly a candidate for public office. And then when the demon was exercised, a radical transformation. Now, I do not make the suggestion that Hillary could be demon-possessed lightly. This is really serious stuff. And I am not so Pollyanna that I think that people without demon possession are incapable of the horrific things that people do. I mean, look through history. We see an awful lot of really bad stuff that people do just because they're fallen people. And I can't 
say dogmatically that when people like Hitler do really horrible things that it's because uh, the devil made him do it or anything like that. However, there is strong demonic influence and we need to consider at least the possibility that this could be true. And in any event, we are not told to rebuke, to criticize, to talk ugly or anything like that. We're supposed to pray for these people. Just as they asked Jesus to go in the other direction, it could have been a lot of Democrats over there. And if Hillary were to get saved, then it's possible she would no longer have a home in the Democratic Party anyway. But that's certainly beyond my scope and even beyond my speculations. But I do think that if we're going to look at the world through a biblical lens, we have to consider the very real possibility that at this end of time, when Satan is being driven out of the spirit world, that he's already got a beachhead here and we're going to see an awful lot more of this stuff. Now, having said that, I think it would be appropriate to back up just a little bit and talk about worldview because when we look into the scriptures, a passage just such as Luke chapter 8 that I just read or any of these other ones, we tend to see differences in culture, but that's about as deep as we can really look. That is, unless we make a self-conscious effort to reject some of the things that we think are given as normal and understand that the way things really are could be radically different from the way we perceive them. Now, I've talked about that on previous programs. One of the things that I brought that up in is the idea that we perceive the world as a three-dimensional thing, but actually the creation within which we reside has more than three dimensions. And so talking about a flat earth or a globe or something like that, it depends on how big your view of reality may be. I'm not going there with this discussion. I'm simply saying that there are an awful lot of things behind the curtain that we are unaware of that do not emerge in our day-to-day -day interaction with what we call the normal world. Those things that can be measured by science, for instance. Something in the scientific world is real if it has mass, if it has weight, if it is subject to gravity or something like that. We tend to see that as a reality. But there may be spirit beings, and as a matter of fact, Scripture says that there are, who are not subject to those things at all, and yet they are no less real. Having said that, I want to take a look at this whole idea of worldview because we need to try and perceive these things through the grid of a biblical worldview. John Stone Street has written to this very point, and I posted it on the homework page. He says a worldview is a framework of basic beliefs that we hold, whether we realize it or not, that shapes our view of and for the world. Everyone has a worldview. The question is not whether you have one, but which one do you have? And of course, there's a recent proliferation of camps, conferences, books, and everything, all talking about biblical worldview. Uh, many of those ideas are unbiblical, quasi-biblical, or maybe even in conflict with other precepts. So I want to go right down to the basics and see what this is, and then you can take a look in your own experience and see, do I really have a biblical worldview? Or have I just kind of put a biblical veneer on a natural worldview that may not be biblical at all? Before we look at what a biblical worldview is, we should consider a few things that it is not. A biblical worldview is not merely holding to Christian morals. 
Uh, certainly Christian morals flow from a biblical worldview, but you can hold Christian morals without having a biblical foundation underneath. It is common for students, unfortunately, to be taught Christian morals without being taught why those morals are true. However, moral values not grounded in truths that transcend one's context no longer make sense when the context changes. This sort of faith is highly volatile, especially in today's world of ever-changing contexts. Also, a biblical worldview is not just living life with Bible verses attached. Many Christians only know the Bible in bits and pieces. Verses and chapters are taken out of context to supplement or Christianize their life. That's not a biblical worldview. Next, and this is also very significant, a biblical worldview is not automatic once you get saved. You can be redeemed and yet not fully think or act like a Christian. Paul spoke to that, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, don't be captive or be taken captive by bad ideas. Colossians 2 speaks to that. Romans 12, being transformed by the renewing of your mind, growing in discernment. Uh, Philippians 1, there's lots of places in the New Testament that speak of mind transformation and all the things that entails. Finally, biblical worldview is not simply Christian reactionism. This is our reputation in the culture and we've kind of earned it. Worldview rhetoric is often nothing more than code language for defensively reacting to all the bad things in culture. Rather than a view of and for the world, it simply becomes a view against the world. So, what is a biblical worldview? Well, first of all, it's biblically grounded. There was a Jewish rabbi by the name of Abraham Heschel, and he once made the following comment about Christians. He said, quote, It seems puzzling to me how greatly attached to the Bible you seem to be, and yet how much like pagans you handle it. The great challenge to those of us who wish to take the Bible seriously is to let it teach us its own essential categories, and then for us to think with them instead of just about them. End quote. I'll let that sink in. A biblical worldview is one that is grounded in the Bible, not just in biblical literacy. It's important to memorize the scripture, but memorization is not the goal. Transformation is the goal. Romans 12. This next thought by Stone Street I like. He says, one of the great barriers to thinking biblically is relegating Christianity to, quote, spiritual things, end quote, rather than everything. This dichotomy is false and does injustice to the robust message of the Bible. The Bible is first and foremost a meta-narrative, a grand sweeping story that claims to be the true story of anything and everything that has ever existed. It begins with the beginning of all things, ends with the end of all things, and we're living somewhere in the middle, somewhere between Genesis and Revelation. I prefer Acts 29. I think that's kind of where we're living, or maybe fifth seal in Revelation, but that's an aside. The point is the Bible sets the stage for all aspects of life and culture. You don't separate it from your life. It is your life. Secondly, a biblical worldview is culturally literate, loving God fully by thinking deeply, discerningly, and truthfully about his world is essential 
to being a true disciple of Christ. According to the way the Bible presents the grand narrative of God's redemptive plan, Christianity is neither a religion of ascetic withdrawal nor a dualistic philosophy that denigrates certain human activity as less than spiritual. Followers of Christ are called to dive deeply and hopefully head first into the significant historical and cultural issues of the human situation. Third, a biblical worldview is defined by hope. This is key, and this is really important to us going forward because we are going into a period of desperation, my humble opinion anyway. When November rolls around, there are going to be a lot of people in this country who are going to be very upset with the election, one way or another, okay? And depending on who wins or who loses depends on who's going to be most frustrated. But come about February, I think everybody is going to be dismayed because, as we know, here in the United States and maybe where you live, the wheels are really falling off the bus, and regardless of the winner of the election, there are going to be profound changes spiritually in this country that are going to really make a difference, and we're going to need hope. Atheism is hopeless. Materialism puts your hope in a false place, puts it in money or possessions or what have you. Preppers are going to find that all their preparation is really a vain hope. The only hope we have is in Christ, and that hope is defined in the biblical worldview because the Bible story from Genesis to Revelation centers on Christ and on his redemption of fallen humanity. We who are hopeless have found a hope in him. Hope, of course, is a crucial aspect of the biblical approach to life and the world. Peter tells the persecuted church to always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Of all the reputations Christians have today, being hopeful is rarely one of them. I dare say that uh, the Escatosphere and those of you who are denizens thereof are the exception to that general rule. Stone Street observes Christians often miss hope in one of two directions, optimism or despair. Optimism is the feel-good expression of Christianity that's always positive, always full of self-help advice, offers safe Christian alternatives to all the evil stuff in the world. On the other hand, despair is the escapism that characterizes those who assume the world is headed straight to hell and there is really nothing we can do about it. Politics, the arts, the courts, and the country are beyond influence and beyond change and are therefore no place for the believer. Um, I think you can probably pick through this and see where he's right and where he's wrong. I am an escapist. Uh, it's a command. Okay, pray that you may be found worthy to escape. I'm praying for an escape. <laughs> I really am. And yes, I do believe that the world system is bound for destruction. It's going over the edge. There really isn't much we can do about it. But our call is not to save the Titanic after it hit the berg. Our call is to persuade people to jump in the lifeboats, to show that there is a better way. And that kind of breaks down a little bit, but the point is, there is a new world coming. There is a kingdom that is about to be established. It's going to be a new world order, a whole lot newer than these folks believe. It's going to be glorious. 
Jesus Christ himself is going to return. He is going to fix everything that's broken, and there will be a millennium of a thousand years of peace and safety and righteousness and beauty and all of these things that politicians and everyone else have promised us and no one can deliver but Christ. In closing, Stone Street writes, A biblical worldview explains the profound goodness and the profound evil that is found in the world and the human heart. No other worldview can do this. Further, the biblical worldview rests the story of the world and the human heart in the hands of a God who created and has invaded both. Having said that, um, done for the day. So uh, we will continue this discussion, perhaps manana, if manana there be. No feeling in my bones. I think we're going to be here for a little while, and I'm okay with that. God's plan, it's a perfect plan. We have lots of opportunities to go out into this world where God has placed us, have an impact for Christ, and become obscenely wealthy in spiritual things. So let's do that. God bless all of you. Bye for now. Got a feeling in my bones, in my bones, I got a feeling Any minute something good is gonna happen to me, I know So here I go, out my door one more time